Hi everyone, welcome to Borderlands, a multi-episode podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on communities in one of the most militarized, controlled and deadly counties of the border, Pima County in the state of Arizona. This third episode will focus on search and rescue in Borderlands, in the Sonora Desert. Why is there a need for search and rescue? Who does search and rescue and how? In 1994, the Clinton administration introduced the Prevention Through Deterrence Strategy, implemented by Border Patrol. This strategy transformed this border, where moving was quite fluid, even though it was already controlled, to an ultra-surveilled area to prevent illegal entry of human beings and goods. In addition to the physical walls separating the US and Mexico, as well as the human means through the Border Patrol, the deployment of technological tools has allowed the implementation of a virtual wall, which pushes back the people who try to cross the border without authorization to more and more isolated places of the desert. Crossing the border is becoming longer and more dangerous. People are faced with both the relentlessness of the American means of control and surveillance and the roughness of the desert, which can lead to death. Borderlands is a ballet of actors intervening at different levels, whether institutional or through citizen initiatives on the subject of search and rescue. In this episode, we will listen to different testimonies, a border patrol, a humanitarian organization and a researcher who work on a daily basis on the subject. We will try to understand what happened in the desert, at this border, for people who try to cross. Let's begin with Mario Agundes, Border Patrol Missing Migrants Programs Coordinator for the Tucson sector. He explains Border Patrol missions. In the Tucson area, we have about, uh, right now, I couldn't give you an exact figure at this moment, but there's somewhere between 1,800 and 2,200 agents, but we have 89,000 square miles to cover. Uh, it's a pretty big size of piece of, of the state with 226 linear miles of water. So it's quite a bit of a area, and we have all three shifts, and we have nine stations within our, our sector. It's divided into nine different uh, subdivisions, per se. Um, so, that's that many, but your main uh, uh, mission is to protect the border uh, in between the ports of entry, primarily looking for any uh, terrorist active, activity, you know, any, any members of a terrorism. That's the first and foremost mission. Um, then we, we're looking for weapons of mass destruction. We're looking for... Uh, situations that could put the national security in danger uh, that it's going to have a great impact criminal uh, people coming across uh, narcotics weapons smuggling um, and also along with that anyone that comes across illegally through the port of entry i mean through uh, the, the, the the border in between the port of entry um, as the bigger picture too is we're cross-trained as the or cross-designated as drug, drug enforcement agents. So we have the authority to search and, and seize for any narcotics. Um, uh, and also part of the customs guys who are cross-designated as customs agents. So if we see any um, commerce or any products coming across the, the border without being inspected, we have the authority to seize it. So our, our main job is to protect the border 
in between the port of entries. And how does the Border Patrol Search and Rescue Special Unit called BORSTAR intervene on the field? BORSTAR, uh, it's, a, it's, a specialized program, it's a specialized group of agents that have paramedicine, tech rescue, swift water rescue, air operations, uh, canine, human detection, remain, uh, human remains detection uh, dogs. But they're very limited amount of agents. They work three shifts, 24-7, but it's a finite resource. So as a missing migrant program, what we do is we get as many pieces of the puzzles as possible to shape up the area where they can have greater success. Where so they be able to get all the uh, uh, information that is prevalent to the, to the location of the missing, distressed, or deceased uh, migrant. Um, we have multiple border patrol agents that can go out there and scan and tell us, no, it's not here because I look. Well, if, but we don't want to use our border agents to do that. You know, we want our border agents to go out and recover, you know, search or uh, rescue or rescue and recover. But this is what's unique also from Border Patrol, because Border Patrol, we're doing search operations every day, all day. That's what that's our, our job. Track you know, people that are on the on the desert, that be that are you know coming across uh, illegally. Uh, they might hit one of our sensors, one of our cameras, one of our radars, uh, or they might call 911, and now we can get to them, you know, before they become in, in distress. So border patrol agents themselves are constantly doing search and rescue. What Borsar adds or station EMTs, emergency medical technicians add, is that once it gets to the migrant, they can provide uh, medical care to stabilize them, to get them out of that area, the harsh environment. I can't give you a specific number, but there's somewhere between 40 and 50 agents. Um, Borsar is not a free, easy class to go and get, or group to go into. It's a selection course and it's an academy they have to endure for a lot of uh, uh, long hours and very harsh training in order to see if they're going to endure uh, the quality of, uh, that's needed in, in an agent. At Mario Agundes explained, Borstar are a few in numbers. Moreover, Borstar are above all border patrols. Their primary mission is law enforcement, as he said. Had the Borstar supervisor, John Red, told the humanitarian organization No More Death, 80 to 90% of a Borstar's work time is spent on its law enforcement missions, more than on rescue ones. In addition, 6% of border patrols, about 12,000 agents, are reportedly trained in certified medicine and only 1% of agents, 200 people, have received uh, training in search and rescue techniques. This figure seems very low in comparison with the magnitude of the deadly ballet that operates in the Sonora Desert. No More Death, a humanitarian organization operating since 2004 directly in the desert of Sonora, documents human rights violation in borderlands with the help of La Coalición de Derechos Humanos and researchers. They're called Border Patrol Intervention, a left-to-die practice. Let's listen to Parker again, volunteer and coordinator of the No More Death Abuse Documentation Group. The Border Patrol has their search and rescue team, um, what they call their search and rescue team, which is BORSTAR. Um, it stands for Border Patrol Search, Trauma and Rescue. Um, 
It's uh, it's about one percent of Border Patrol's budget, and it's just Border Patrol agents who, in addition to their regular work, have gone through some extra training. They have their EMT license, so they can provide medical care, and they get some additional search and rescue training. Um, in my opinion, it's mostly a PR stunt. There's a lot of media that they put out about their rescues, um, but Borstar is, um, they're very flashy. They have sort of like technical skills that they really like to show off for journalists. Um, but in my opinion, that doesn't correspond to them actually responding to missing persons cases and taking them seriously and following through. And very rarely do we see active searches for someone whose location is not definite, um, what we'll see more is kind of a very technical rescue from the side of a cliff that they, you know, put out a press release about. Um, but so that's sort of Border Patrol's official um, search and rescue organization. Policy-wise, um, they don't like have to respond to cases. Border Patrol will also sometimes say that it's not their job to search for people who are missing crossing the border. Um, and this is where we see sort of the gap between the different official responses. Um, so Pima County is the biggest county in Southern Arizona. Um, that's where we are now in Tucson and it shares um, most of the border with Mexico in the state. Um, and um, so for, for civilians or citizens who go missing, it would be the sheriffs for the county who search for them. Um, and that should not depend on citizenship. So the Pima County Sheriff should also be responsible for search and rescue for anyone who's missing in Pima County, and that should include people who have crossed the border. Um, but they transfer their calls to Border Patrol. And so what we see is they don't take those calls, they transfer them to Border Patrol. Border Patrol thinks it's not really their responsibility. Sometimes they send people out, sometimes they don't. Well, sometimes it'll depend on um, whether they say they have capacity, um, uh, we find that Border Patrol, they always prioritize enforcement operations and they'll even say we're an enforcement agency, not a search and rescue agency. Um, so, you know, if their helicopters are busy arresting people, they don't have a helicopter to send out on a search and rescue. Um, we'll also hear, I mean, there's not a lot of consistency and it's very opaque as I'm sure you know, Border Patrol is one of the most like opaque organizations. Um, so, you know, no policies are really like known if they even have concrete policies regarding when to search. Um, but they'll also often say they'll only go with exact locational details, um, which means essentially they're not searching. They'll go if they have exact coordinates, um, which essentially makes it an arrest. You know, if they know exactly where someone is and they've got someone nearby or available to go, they'll send them to pick them up and arrest them. According to the Border Patrol Agency, agents track people in the borderlands. What kind of techniques are used? And what are the consequences for tracked people? We document uh, the practice of chase and scatter. So that's one thing that really leads to the cycle of disappearance is Border Patrol um, will scatter groups of people who are migrating um, in a way that causes them to run in different directions and become separated. Sometimes they do this by flying their helicopter really low over a group of people who are walking, like so low that it's kicking up the dust and people are disoriented and, and, and running from this helicopter. Um, sometimes they use ATVs um, or just on foot, they'll chase people. Um, and what you see is, um, this is really like what causes people to become separated from the person they're traveling with. And a lot of people crossing in this area are completely unfamiliar with the terrain. Um, they lose their guide, um, they lose whatever family member they're traveling with, 
and they may even lose their supplies. Like they, you know, they left their backpack and they lost their backpack in the chase. Um, so they don't have food or water. Um, and we documented this because it's extremely common. Um, so our volunteers, like every day when we run into folks who are alone, it's because they were chased by border patrol. Um, so um, this is like a huge, a huge factor in how people become lost and disappeared in the first place. Um, we also documented border patrol just destroying the humanitarian aid supplies that are left for people crossing the border. Um, so we, our volunteers for many years have had the experience of hiking to one of our water traps and finding that every water gallon had been stabbed um, and beans had been dumped out or food had been just destroyed um, and vandalized. And we sort of anecdotally had a belief that Border Patrol was responsible. Um, so we did put up some game cameras at areas where that was happening um, and were able to document that Border Patrol has been um, destroying this water pretty consistently for many years. Uh, and. Yeah, so that just, I think, really highlights their attitude. You know, they, they really just, you know, I mean, I think a lot of them are just, you know, cruel and racist, but I would say even just organization-wide, this um, this idea, this strategy, this enforcement idea that if you make this crossing more dangerous, that that's a valid way of enforcing the border, um, really trickles down to, like, what I consider straight-up murderous acts, you know? And they think, you know, well, great, they'll go turn themselves in now. And, you know, it's like, yeah, or, or they won't survive because of, because the water was destroyed, and um, yes. Yeah, so we then we've documented this practice of of failing to respond to calls for rescue um, and missing persons reports, um, despite having sort of really positioned themselves as the agency that's responsible for search and rescue. Um, and, and we consider this a discriminatory system. Um, people just because of their citizenship are placed into a different system um, where they're not receiving the life saving services that they need. I mean. I, I fully attribute the, the crisis, the level of death and disappearance that we're seeing on the border to militarization of the border, um, beginning with the implementation of prevention through deterrence, um, which was also a law that was put into place um, kind of alongside NAFTA, alongside predictions um, that NAFTA would lead to mass displacement um, and, and more people traveling north and trying to cross the border. And so at that same time, um, our attempts to keep people out were really ramped up. Um, but the effect of all this militarization has been to really increase the danger of this journey for people. Um, and that's been an ongoing process. You know, it's not something that just happened in the mid nineties. We continue to add infrastructure. Um, in addition to the walls, you know, have the smart border. Um, so adding surveillance towers and drones and things like that, that push people out into these really deadly areas. Um, and so, I, I, I mean, I, I believe that there's no humane way to, to um, enforce the border or to try and keep people out because um, of all of the different reasons of climate change and imperialist violence, um, people are going to travel north. Um, and as long as we try and keep people out, I think people are going to try. And so far, our tactic, the tactic of our government has been to try and enforce the border by making it more dangerous. And that's just led to this loss of life. Um, and of course, you know, like before this militarization, I think it was like one person every three months, there would be a documented death of someone maybe drowning. Um, but since the increases in militarization, um, remains are being found every day in the borderlands. And the disappearances, of course, can't even be accounted for. The, the amount of people um, who died that we'll never know. Because um, we, we see that all the time in our work. Um, we go out to you know search for one person and we recover more remains that we wouldn't have found if we weren't searching for that other person. 
Um, and there's so many unresolved missing persons cases that, that we'll just never know the true number of people who have lost their lives. I, I think even just from a public health perspective, um, the, the trauma on people who do survive the journey is also enormous. Um, so, you know, the same things that, that end up killing people or leading them to disappear. Um, you, you have, you know, people who have been through such serious dehydration that they've lost kidney function for the rest of their lives, things like that. Um, and then just the trauma of people who someone they were traveling with died, um, a family member they were traveling with died. Um, you know, the, the journey is really, really traumatic. So I think we also need to really understand that it's not even those who, who survive it um, and even make it to their destination, um, there's, there's a huge impact on, on what they've been through. Um, and then, you know, those who are deported often are deported back to violent situations um, or back into situations where they can't support their families. Um, so it's, there's really, um, you know, there's no good outcome. So some people who, who, who make that journey and um, don't die or disappear, but they're detained. Um, they often suffer abuses in Border Patrol custody, um, not receiving adequate medical care, um, just being harassed and degraded, um, and then they're deported, you know, back to whatever situation it is that led them to leave um, in the first place. Um, yeah, so that whole impact. And then, you know, I, maybe you've spoken to some other folks who come at this from more of an environmental perspective, but the environmental impact of the militarization is also, um, really devastating to the ecosystems in the borderlands. In the borderlands, you have plenty of control and surveillance means. One of them, the Beacon Towers, is presented by officials as the search and rescue tool. Listen to Tara Plath, an interdisciplinary-based researcher living in Hao, Arizona, and doing research and mapping on beacon towers. The rescue beacons, which are couched under the border security initiative and started popping up sometime around after 2001 or 2004, depending on what you read. And those, yeah, there are uh, 56 or 58 beacons in the state that are intended to be used by people who are crossing the desert um, and, and a button can be pressed or some have a satellite phone where you can call for help or rescue. Um, but what isn't articulated on these beacons is that rescue comes in the form of border patrol who proceeds to detain and deport you. Um, you can request medical care at that time, but I believe that care comes at the cost of being separated from your group um, and then ultimately being deported um, and these beacons get used in a very specific way through press releases and news stories as um, creating an image of Border Patrol as some type of humanitarian uh, organization that has an interest in saving lives when most of their practices are antithetical to that idea. Um, so they kind of become a piece of, I think, propaganda um, used to create a different image that covers up a, a harsher reality. So the rescue beacons are um, mobile, discrete mobile pieces of infrastructure. It's a 35-foot um, pole, metal pole, secured by a 5 by 5 
foot cement base. They're designed to be easily installed and moved around depending on the shifting routes of people crossing. Um, and also because they have a small footprint, they don't have to overcome Border Patrol as an agency doesn't have to overcome as many barriers around environmental protection protocol um, and legislation on federal land and on national park land and fish and wildlife service land. Um, and the, the, so the beacons have this base, a pole, a flashing blue light, um, LED light that strobes. Uh, it's not particularly easy to see in the daytime, but um, fairly visible at night. Uh, they say the light has a 10 mile radius of visibility that doesn't account for the mountainous terrain, the heavy vegetation, the washes. Um, so I don't think the visibility is nearly what they claim it to be. And then the beacon includes a, a set of instructions in English, Spanish, and Tahana Atam, the language of the native people of this land, whose ancestral lands the beacons are installed on, and the instructions, as well as pictographs for those who might not be able to read uh, or speak languages not on the sign that describe how you should press this large red button and wait for rescue to arrive. Um, the beacons also include a motion-censored camera uh, that I believe is activated when somebody's within a certain range. Don't think it's the same type of surveillance technology that's on a IFT tower or other type of surveillance infrastructure. I think it's a much more limited scope that's supposed to allow a command center to see who is pressing the button and what the scenario is. Um, and then some of the beacons now have satellite phones where you can call, I believe it goes directly to a Border Patrol Command Center, you can call directly and request aid. Um, and then they also have these reflecting pieces of silver, of metal at the top for daytime visibility, um, which, yeah, to limited success, it's interesting trying to spot one in the daytime. They're usually very difficult to find. The, I believe the first thing that needs to be, that, that would be accounted for is that the beacons, for the most part, require a road of a certain quality that will allow a truck to drive the pieces and parts to the location. Um, and they have to be installed on flat ground. So it needs to be in a, in a pretty accessible area, which is interesting because it's a bit counterintuitive to the areas where rescue might be most needed, um, which is farther from the roads. But I do believe, I know they relocate beacons based on use. So if a beacon isn't being used very often, they will relocate it to an area that they believe is um, more heavily trafficked. Um, we also saw in during the trials against humanitarian workers in the Ajo area that they installed two more beacons in the Growler Valley um, where some of the arrests had happened in direct response to the amount of human remains that were being discovered over the course of that summer. Um, so they do locate them in areas where they think they will be used more. So are beacon towers saving people in the desert? Does their presence have any impact on the borderlands? And more precisely, on people trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border? Um, I've seen some numbers 
shared by Border Patrol or published elsewhere that list the amount of times a beacon has been activated and how many people have been quote unquote rescued because of that activation. Um, I think the word save, uh, it's interesting to think about the timeline of um, somebody being in a vulnerable or precarious situation. So there is um, this sense of immediacy if somebody is suffering from dehydration or exposure and they are, their life is in danger in that immediate moment. Um, one could argue that the beacons do save people because hypothetically, if you activate them, you'll be rescued. Though there has been testimony from people who have activated the beacons and nobody has arrived to help them or help has not arrived for many hours. Um, and we don't know how often that's happening because Border Patrol has, there's no level of accountability around how effective these beacons are. And Border Patrol has a lot of discretionary power and they get to decide whether or not to respond to a beacon activation. We really have no, there's no way to understand um, how often rescues are not being responded to or calls for help are not being responded to. Um, we could try to file a Freedom of Information Act request, but Border Patrol is pretty infamous for not answering those. And then on a, long, a longer, a more extended timeline, we understand that Border Patrol is deporting people into areas into northern Mexico where people will face other kind of risk and danger um, and their health will be compromised and they might try to cross again. Um, so I would be hesitant to say the rescue beacons are saving people. The beacons are interesting in that way. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize they're related to um, issues around migration through the desert. So I've seen blogs and tourist accounts who believe the beacons are there for them in case they encounter um, cartel activity or something dangerous because there are these signs warning people about illegal smuggling and kind of creating this environment of fear. So some people see the beacons and, and think they're uh, meant for, you know, campers, um, which I always find very interesting. There is, there's not been a study done about the beacon specifically, but um, Jeffrey Boyce, Sam Chambers, and Sarah Lanius, a team of um, researchers and geographers uh, who collaborate with No More Deaths, uh, No Mas Muertes, on studies and reports, they've done really interesting work looking at how the um, addition of surveillance technology, visible surveillance technology, like the IFT towers, um, create what they call a tertiary funnel effect. Um, so that, what they mean when they say that is there's already a funnel effect happening through prevention through deterrence where people, the border crossing routes are being funneled into these mountainous areas between cities but then the installation of surveillance technology that people can see when they're crossing and try to avoid because that's evidence of 
uh, border patrol or just of sort of any sort of human activity and they're traveling in a clandestine ma manner, they're avoiding those towers. So they're being pushed into even further, deeper, more remote territory, more dangerous areas. Um, and it, there's no evidence that says, it, I don't think it would be a stretch to say the beacons work in the same way. Um, there's, I don't think there's a, enough of a public information campaign happening in Northern Mexico or Central America that would allow for people who are crossing to know what the beacons are in advance. And so if you see this flashing blue light, um, I, I don't think it, we can assume that people understand that as a place of rescue. Um, in fact, I would associate it with police, with you know the lights on police cars. Um, and so I think people are likely avoiding those lights and getting into more dangerous territory um, until possibly a moment where they realize they really need rescue and then you go towards sort of that, that infrastructure. And I don't have so much insight as to how like the Ajo community or the Tucson community, people who are in areas with beacons feel about them. Um, I do know there are beacons on the Tahana Atum reservation and there's been requests to have them removed in certain districts um, because of their impact on the environment um, and on people's relationship to their land. Um, I also know that the sort of sample or example beacon installed at the Border Patrol headquarters in Tucson, it's now only like 10 feet tall. It used to be 30 feet tall, but it was distracting people on the highway. Um, so people don't know what they are. They don't know how to think about them. Uh, they're these really ambiguous objects that are just um, vague. And yeah, so I don't know if there's like a comprehensive understanding of them. There are unofficial efforts, um, volunteer groups and organizations who have taken it upon themselves to be in touch with families of the missing or to receive calls via hotlines um, about people who have been left behind um, or lost in the desert. Um, and those are primarily self-funded, self-organized groups who feel a calling and have a specific relationship to the struggles of people walking across the border um, who do that work. So I wouldn't call Border Patrol's program official necessarily, um, but they claim to have initiatives intended to rescue migrants. This third episode let us understand that even if there is a need of search and rescue operations, there are no efficient official responses. Episode four, We'll talk about the civil responses in the borderlands, from water dropping to medical head and search and rescue operations, how people try to fight the border regime system and its deadly consequences. Thank you for following Borderlands, a multi-episode podcast about the US-Mexico migration border policies and their impact on communities. See you soon. And don't forget, this episode has been mixed by Nicolas Puissant.